are just round the corner. The Defence Secretary says we're prepared. We want people to come to London absolutely confident that they will be safe and secure as they enjoy the Games. What can be done about Syria? Does Russia hold the key? And as HMS Liverpool prepares to bow out with a goodbye tour of her home city, we ask what's going to replace her? The mammoth task of protecting the London Olympics from a terrorist attack is something high on the Defence Secretary's agenda. Philip Hammond says security plans have been put in place for the Games to make sure the UK is prepared in every respect to deal with any threats. Yesterday, he visited RAF Waddington in Lincolnshire to watch an air security training exercise and meet members of the armed forces who will be providing airborne security at the London Games, which incidentally are 148 days away. BFBS Olympic security correspondent Charlotte Cross was there and joins me now, as does BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Charlotte, this wasn't the first such exercise, was it? No, it was the second of five exercises which will be completed before the Games begin. But this was the first time that all the elements for the air security plan for the Olympic Games have come together to ensure that they're integrated and can work together smoothly and have adequately prepared to protect the skies over the southeast of England during the Games. And what did the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond have to say about it? Well, he was quite adamant that there is no reported threat against the Games, but he said that the government is not taking any chances with its security measures. We are preparing for every eventuality. We want people to come to London absolutely confident that they will be safe and secure as they enjoy the Games. Uh, And the military behind the police will be standing ready to deal with any threat that does emerge. And what you've seen here uh, this morning uh, is the great variety of assets that we've got available to provide a layered uh, air defence response. Different levels of radar uh, to detect any threats. Uh, different levels of aircraft and missiles able to respond to deal with any threats that do arise. So, Charlotte, what will the security plan involve? Well, there are two main aims to the plan. The first is to identify any possible threat, and that's being done using early warning systems, including Type 101 radar, the E3D sentry surveillance plane, and even human observers will be posted around the city to act as extra eyes and ears. The second aim is to prevent an attack, and that means responding to a specific threat with the appropriate uh, weapon system. That could mean scrambling a typhoon, firing javelin missiles, or even deploying airborne snipers. Um, Rapier, the ground-based air defence system, might also be deployed, possibly in London parks, but that has yet to be decided, although the feeling yesterday was that it would be deployed because its radar are particularly good at locating low-flying objects and there might otherwise be a capability gap. Considering the fact that we're talking about the possibility of shooting down something over the skies of London, uh, Defence Secretary Philip Hammond explained there are measures in place to make sure that any response is proportionate. And all the way through the process uh, there will be a a measured escalation uh, of response trying first of all to make contact with any uh, rogue aircraft then to deter it and persuade it uh, to move away from the target area and ultimately if necessary to uh, engage with it. Ministers will be in overall control of this process throughout uh, and part of the point of these exercises is uh, is to rehearse the command and control procedures to make sure that we've got it right and we understand how it will work.
Are we likely to see any disruption to the skies over London during the Olympics, uh, barring out, ruling out a terrorist attack, of course? Well, we've been assured there'll be no disruption to scheduled air traffic control movements during the Games, so flights in and out of Heathrow um, and other airports will continue to go ahead unaffected. But what's going on in the skies will be monitored and controlled a lot more closely. From mid-July, the airspace over London will be divided into a prohibited zone at the centre and ringed around that will be a restricted zone. And additional measures will be in place on both to ensure that all air movements are known in advance. So even a hot air balloon will have to submit a flight plan um, so that anything in the sky that hasn't done so will be treated as unauthorised and therefore suspicious. The helicopter crews, the Pima and Lynx crews, do have large white signs, one which says follow me on it and another which has a contact frequency on it so that if someone is just lost in the skies over London they can be communicated with and escorted safely out of the way. So what's being done to speed up the response time to any attack? Well, some of the assets are being moved much nearer to London uh, to bring down the response times. Two typhoons will be forward at RAF Northolt, as will a Royal Navy Sea King helicopter, which will be involved in early warning surveillance. And there'll be Lynx helicopters operating from HMS Ocean on the Thames. And the Tactical Air Control Centre is moving to Ilford, uh, giving greater situational awareness across London. And the Army's Puma helicopters will also be based at Ilford. So even though all these assets will be operating throughout the Games, they'll be out of sight most of the time, which is probably the reason for publicising this exercise uh, yesterday, because the message is, rest assured, although you can't see them, they are there and they're at high readiness to respond. All right, Charlotte Cross, thank you for that. Uh, Christopher Lee, um, all sounds very positive. What do you think? If you, can, if you want to do what the Secretary of State is saying, then we've probably got a sufficient number of assets um, but the scenario is much bigger than he was explaining. For example, if you're talking about uh, an air attack, who says it's coming from the southeast of London? Who says it doesn't start off in Dublin, it doesn't start on the continental Europe? Who says it's going to be attacking in the southeast? The bigger picture is that if you're a terrorist and you want to create terror, which is the whole function of terrorism, why don't you go bomb Cardiff or Luton? or somewhere entirely where you don't have these sort of assets. And this is one of the problems. Now, the biggest problem in anything like this, any security operation like this, uh, is coordinating all these assets on a 24-hour basis. And so you say, for example, I want about 7,000 security troops in. Well, what sort of troops? I mean, there's no, there's no point in saying soldiers. That's OK for a Daily, head, daily Mail headline. So we know, I mean, you know, 7,000 soldiers, they've got to be infantry, they've got to be trained in internal security. You need about 18,000 soldiers in this sort of training to maintain 7,000. Where are they going to come from in the present setup? Who is going to command them? What happens, for example, you get, you get a report that something's going on in a, I don't know, a, a North London underground or something that's going on in Bedfordshire or something like this. Who takes the decision? How is the decision taken? And, and, and you've got a feeling that, that that is being thought about very seriously and being worked out carefully enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it always has been. I mean, we, this goes back to what was happening up at Easingwold in Yorkshire, which was the Home Office uh, Emergency uh, Training Centre. And so it could be anything from... Uh, it could be a civil disobedience, it could be a nuclear attack on the United Kingdom. The principles are just the same. You have to create a so-called Natanshire, a mythical place. And you say, how do I coordinate all, 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 all the assets that I've got? Who knows what we're doing? And, for example, uh, who can I tell that I'm doing it? And we have a problem at the moment that if, if, if you know, for example, that something's happening, how do you tell me 
and how do I know uh, how to integrate it with what else I know that's happening? That is the size of the problem. And thrown into all of this, we had the General Secretary of Unite, Len McCluskey, yesterday saying that the event is an opportunity for protests against uh, government cuts in public services, calling for a campaign of civil disobedience. Um, it does seem rather um, irresponsible to suggest that kind of thing. Uh, sleepless in, in sort of Seattle, isn't it, really, stuff? Um, if you want to get the protest that you saw at the, uh, in, in all the G8 or the, and the G20 uh, summits at Davos, uh, outside of St Paul's Cathedral, this just wouldn't you be have tolerated, to add it? that lot in as well, because that is going to happen. And the smarter people are the ones that belong to those sort of organisations. But at the end of it, the biggest problem is intelligence. And intelligence might be simply on street level, and somebody sees something. How do they know who to tell? And when they've told, how does that person know who else to tell? That is the beginning of the security problem. Very much work in progress. Thank you. Sit rep with Still to come, what can be done about the situation in Syria? The UN special envoy to the country is expected there soon. And HMS Liverpool says goodbye to the Mersey. BFBS Sit rep. Two international troops have been killed in what appears to be another attack inside a military base in Afghanistan. They're reported to be American. It's happened as the head of international forces in Afghanistan insisted the ISAF mission would recover from what he called the setback of violent protests against the burning of copies of the Koran. BFBS reporter James Hurst joins us now from Camp Bastion. Uh, James, first of all, can you tell us about this attack? Well, yeah, it's happened, uh, we think, in an area, a district of Kandahar called Zere. And uh, some of the first details that came from it appeared to uh, come from a local official who said it happened inside what he called a troubled outpost. Now, the the only official line that uh, ISAF initially gave was that two Afghans, one who appeared to be an Afghan soldier and one civilian, opened fire indiscriminately and that two international troops were killed. This local official in Zere, though, is disputing that. Uh, They are saying that uh, actually it was only the civilian who opened fire, somebody who is reported locally to be um, a a language trainer. Um, So there are still some confused details about what's happened there, but essentially what you do have, as you said, is an attack inside a NATO base, inside a a military base that uh, ISAF troops and Afghan troops share together at a time when there has been great tension. Of course, these are the sixth ISAF troops to have uh, been killed in this way in the space of a week. And James, are the protests about the Koran burning still going on? I, I, I couldn't say for absolutely certain, but certainly they are not at the scale that they have been. I mean, they, the, the worst of them have been in the north and the east of the country. Um, and, you know, perhaps the culmination of that was also this bomb that went off outside Jalalabad Airport, uh, killing nine people, which I believe was Monday at the start of this week. We've not seen anything of that scale since then. The streets have become calmer, but you're not certain that it's gone away. Certainly there is still, I think, some of this tension. I think there's a feeling from people in Afghanistan this incident over the burning of the Qurans at Bagram Air Base is not yet resolved. Uh, Christopher, this couldn't have come at a worse time, could it, all of this? Um, That's always true. Um, Any disruption comes at a bad time. 
But it is inevitable, and it's not the first time, that you, um, you do something damn stupid, such as the burning, when we do know that there is a procedure for getting rid, as we were talking last week, actually getting rid of Korans. You either give them to a religious uh, 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 man, or you actually bury them, or you put them in water, and you send them in flowing water. And that is the, that is the religious way of getting rid of them. We did not know that, and if we did know it, nobody told the troops that were actually handling the operation. That allows Taliban to get in. It allows Taliban to an excuse, if it needs one, to make its protest. But at the moment, I actually don't believe that it does anything for the security operation. It doesn't make it worse, um, because the security operation is a much bigger picture than what we have here. And James, what has the ISAF Commander General John Allen been talking and saying about all of this? Well, he's described it uh, in an interview last night as a setback, a setback that can be overcome. He's stressed once again that there is uh, an inquiry going on. He says there's still some work to do within that. I mean, the the, the point that Christopher makes about uh, the security operation being bigger than this, absolutely. But in the short term, we have seen an interruption to work going on, an important interruption to work going on, most visibly because of the withdrawal of NATO advisers and also some international civilian advisers from Afghan ministries. Because of that shooting, inside the Ministry of Interior, one of the most secure buildings supposedly in the country at the weekend, two American soldiers shot. And that, you know, that creates a physical difficulty. It is that uncertainty. I mean, I think the thing that's important about that is essentially what you had is a killer on the loose because it wasn't like some of the some of the other killings that we have seen where quite often the assailant is themselves either arrested or or, or or shot when it happens so in a sense it is um, an understandable reaction from ISAF and interesting we are seeing selected ISAF personnel going back into ministries but it it is a very big blip, if nothing else, along the the process. Uh, and what is the on the ground? What is the feeling like the relationship between ISAF and the Afghan National Army amongst all of this? I mean, I can only uh, speak from from my experience. And at the start of this week, uh, myself and my colleague James Banks uh, were at uh, Camp Goreshk, um, which is just actually literally just outside uh, an ISAF main operating base, uh, main operating base Price. That is an Afghan base with a small British enclave in it. Now, certainly, what I saw there, no working tension whatsoever between those British troops and those Afghan troops. They have a good working relationship, and we didn't just see inside the camp. We saw then the next day uh, the Afghans go out and lead their own operation with ISAF in support. And in terms of working relationship, it was all fine. I, I, I think it would be wrong to say there wasn't a feeling of a bit of tension a little bit of tension from those British troops who live and work alongside those Afghans, just because the security state across the country uh, was raised. And again, you know, within Camp Bastion, people have been asked to be more alert, but work is going on as normal between ISAF and, uh, and Afghan troops and training as well. All right, James Hurst in Afghanistan, thank you for that. Well, as we begin a new month, the daily killing continues in Syria. There's been chilling talk of cleaning entire areas of rebels and the international community stands on the sidelines 
wringing its hands. All diplomatic staff have been withdrawn from the British Embassy and yet former UN Secretary-General and now envoy to Syria, Kofi Annan, is calling for diplomacy with President Assad. And what of a third UN resolution proposed by the US? Is that just wishful thinking, given Russia is staging presidential elections this weekend? Uh, Christopher, can you see any kind of solution which is... Uh, obviously needed with an unbearable situation that we're witnessing. It's not going to happen this week, is it? Or next week, or the week after, or whatever. The, there is no military solution as far as, for example, NATO is concerned, and the United States is concerned. can't be done militarily. So where, who are the people that could actually sort something? Now, the people in the Middle East I talk to come up with, the, first and foremost, there is the fantasy scenario, and that is that you organize a palace revolution against Assad, and especially his brother, who runs the 4th Division. And it's the 4th Division that's actually moving at the moment in against the so-called opposition. They've softened it up with artillery, uh, uh, fire, and then comes the, the infantry afterward to do house-by-house stuff. So a palace revolution is the answer, according to some of them. The other solution is that you create... Uh, over the border in Syria from Turkey, an area where you can have the so-called Palestine, uh, have the so-called uh, Syrian Free Army, etc., and other people there, and you're setting up a, m- a mini opposition state. That's another possibility. You, you say you do this. Who does this exactly? Oh well, Turkey is very, very willing to do it, mm. and that's the important thing. The Americans have actually said to the Turks, you know, we can see that this is one of the ways of doing it. But the truth is. Uh, just as 30 years ago, Assad's father uh, marched in and did exactly what they've been doing at Homs at the moment and killed 20,000 Syrians. Nothing. Nothing was done because nothing could be done. This is not what went on in Lebanon. It is not uh, like anything else that we've seen. So that aside, at the moment, how should President Assad be handled? Should the international community be talking about diplomacy with him? Um, diplomacy is... Um, I'm never quite sure about the definitions of diplomacy because it depends who's doing the talking. I think, actually, it's a regional, it's a regional difficulty and the answer is probably within the region. Now, for example, Gahara and the, uh, the, the Saudis, they seem to have some idea that they can lead the so-called diplomatic pressures on, on, on Assad. And they're saying, or they were certainly saying last night, listen, eventually Assad is going to go. But it could be that they're going to go. Uh, they, they say it could be months, even years, but eventually he will get his. Now, that doesn't help people who are today dying and knowing full well that two things are important. One, the so-called opposition isn't organised. Who is the leader? Who do we talk about and say, right, that is the guy that's actually leading the opposition? There isn't one guy standing up there and being interviewed everywhere. All the people that you hear about being interviewed are people who don't even live there. And that is another problem. And the second part of it, it is very much a regional solution. We have ended up by understanding that when you get something as serious as this, in spite of our so-called greatness of superpartum, etc., we actually don't have the ability, especially in the election years, to do anything about it. Well, Alexander Nekrasov is a com- commentator on international affairs and a former advisor to the Kremlin under Boris Yeltsin. He joins us on the line. A good to speak to you today, Alexander. Um, you argued that Russia, which has vetoed two previous UN resolutions on Syria, should have been brought on side earlier. How might that have changed things? Well, Russia and China, I would like to remind you. But uh, basically, I think this is a failure 
of the whole international mechanism of uh, resorting uh, conflicts. Because the UN is now appointing yesterday, with funfair, special advisor to Syria, Kofi Annan. First of all, Kofi Annan is not exactly the perfect candidate, having been presiding in Rwanda over a botched uh, peacekeeping operation. Uh, secondly, it's too late for diplomacy to come in now. The UN should have been sending special advisors constantly in the past 11 months. It didn't. Uh, I think the situation is out of control now. I think Russia did a, a good attempt to talk to Assad. Assad was quite... Uh, uh, stern uh, uh, and, st uh, and stubborn when he was meeting Lavrov. He was saying that this is a, all a, uh, a coup against him, that it's, uh, the Americans are behind it and the Saudis and so on. And in a way he was right, because what we are witnessing now is that the West is basically supporting the Saudis, the Turks and the Qataris in uh, overthrowing uh, Assad. And if you add to this that we have a terrible example of Libya when the UN was used by NATO basically to rubber stamp a resolution and then break all the important points in it, I think we are going to have a crisis which will run on and on and on. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what, what is the danger that beyond the obvious humanitarian concerns that the longer this goes on, Syria will become a, kind of a focal point for a new Cold War? Russia, China, Iran on one side and the West on the other. Sectarian violence in the middle. I don't think that there will be a Cold War between the East and the West again. I think that, first of all, we should really stop being emotional and talk about people's power and freedom and democracy. We are talking about the struggle for power. Every country in the Middle East during that Arab Spring, if you look at it, it's a struggle for power. The people are just used by groups of interests that are positioning for power. The same is happening in Syria, and simply we don't see at the moment who actually, who are those groups that are opposing uh, Assad and want to take over. But let's not get all emotional all the time about children dying and about democracy being uh, stopped. This is, this is war for power, and we should try to limit the damage as much as possible. But unfortunately, the international community has no effective mechanism to oust dictators. By the way, Russia does not want Assad to stay on. And Sergei Lavrov, the foreign secretary, said, we are not trying to save his neck. We are just trying to find a way out so that less people will die. Unfortunately, that attempt didn't work. I don't think Kofi Annan will be able to do anything. Uh, I think we just moved into a situation where we can hope, we can hope that something might come up. But until Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Turkey are going to play their uh, games behind the scenes, I don't think anything can happen. Uh, hope, you say, uh, Christopher, obviously presidential elections in Russia this weekend, and we've said before on this programme that, that Russia won't support a UN resolution or unlikely to do so uh, on Syria because of that. Uh, is th are things going to change post-Sunday? Um, no. Um, except that they will, if all the forecasts uh, are correct and uh, Alexander Nekrasov knows better than I, um, then Mr Putin will be president once again. But that, again, is the bigger picture. And that's when, you know, Alexander, it's absolutely sort of right. You, you take something like Syria and you think, we ought to do something about it. There isn't a mechanism to do something about it. We may be great superpowers, we may have all the assets, etc. We can't fix that. Far more important to sort out 
the relationship between, let us say, the United States and Russia, uh, the EU, etc. Those are the bigger pictures that would eventually run the world and more, far more comfortably. Uh, and Alexander, how do you see uh, Russian foreign policy developing next week and beyond, uh, assuming Putin becomes the next president? Well, I, I think that uh, uh, after Putin comes back to power, I don't really see any problems for relations between Russia and the West, Russia and America. I think Christopher is making a very important point that all those conflicts around the world basically depend on what relations between America, Russia, you know, the West generally and Russia are. And, Ch and don't forget China as well, by the way. So I think that if the relations uh, start to improve uh, after the elections and further on, I think we will see the improvement of the general atmosphere around the world. And actually, maybe if there was more trust between Russia, China and America and Britain and France, I think they might have come up with some solution much earlier uh, in, in this crisis. But unfortunately, there is still distrust, especially after Libya. China and Russia have been very suspicious of the West after Libya, and that's why we see these problems. I think we, we should actually hope that global relations between the superpowers improve, and then something might be done about those crises. Alexander Nikrasov, thank you very much. Thank you. This is BFBS. Sit rep. HMS Liverpool is bidding a farewell to her namesake city. The destroyer, which in the Libya campaign became the first British warship to come under fire for 29 years, is being decommissioned this month. As part of her farewell tour, she's spending the next six days revisiting the waters where she first sailed. A little earlier, I spoke to BFBS reporter Jeff Mead, who spent yesterday on board, and I asked him if the ship was on its last legs. Yes, I think that's slightly cruel, although, yes, there are all kinds of problems. I mean, as you would expect, with a, a vessel that was, uh, well, its design goes back to the late 60s. Uh, she was launched in 1980. Uh, she was in service just after the end of the Falklands War. So, you know, uh, she certainly has, has earned her keep. You go on board and she shows, you know, this, it's crowded. Um, the, you know, there's a lot of uh, wiring that no longer works. Uh, you know, she's a vessel that's, uh, that's seen a lot of, uh, of, of service and pretty much has, has come to the end of her useful life. Um, the, the commanding officer, um, Commander Colin Williams, agreed she'd not been the easiest vessel to sail. No, she's not, and she has her own little quirks and, uh, and idiosyncrasies, and that's, that's fine because you get to know and love them. Um, but she is 30 years old, and, and you know, occasionally you have equipment that does fail, as with all the newest equipment. But uh, she's, she's kept us busy keeping her going. HMS Liverpool has been busy over the last 12 months, both in the Libya campaign and later escorting part of the Russian fleet around the British Isles. Any idea which ships will be doing this work now she's being decommissioned? Uh, this, is a, this is a key question. I mean, you've got to remember, when the Type 42 was, was ordered, uh, we actually had at one stage 14 of those. Um, when uh, Liverpool goes at the end of this month, there'll only be two left. Uh, the destroyers that will replace uh, the Type 42 is a Type 45, much better, of course, much more modern, uh, but there will only be six of them. And that really is, you know, a, a, an obvious problem. You simply won't have the sort of number of hulls uh, that we've had available over the last 20 years or so. Um, and that was a point I, I put to the CO. What did he think was going to happen? It's a very difficult argument. You only have so many ships, they can only be in so many places. But the capability that they bring is obviously the key uh, winning factor. And, and it's up to um, people who 
who have to make these decisions as to where they place the ships. Uh, but yes, you're right. I mean, there's always going to be a degree of concern there. But we are buying some extremely capable platforms that will be able to deal with uh, situations as and when they arise. Now, Jeff, Liverpool yesterday to Southampton later today. What's going on there? <laughs> I feel rather like antique roadshow correspondent. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit unkind. But HMS Tireless, uh, one of uh, the five Trafalgar-class submarines that uh, uh, we still have, um, she finished uh, last year. She achieved 10 months uh, of, of patrol, which was the longest for 10 years uh, in terms of a submarine uh, away on operations. So um, she's doing a, a PR visit to um, Southampton. What, of course, is interesting is the last time a nuclear submarine was in Southampton was April last year. That was astute when, of course, a crew member went berserk, opened fire um, with, with uh, a gun in the control room, uh, killed one officer and wounded another. Um, there will be uh, Councillor Royston Smith, uh, the leader of uh, the, uh, the, the, the council there in Southampton, who actually overpowered that gunman mm. last year. He's aboard um, t- tireless today. So I guess for him it will be quite uh, difficult, must be quite brave to go on board a submarine again after what happened last time. Um, but yes, you know, it's, a, it's a showing that uh, Southampton uh, it has close links with the Royal Navy. It supports the submarine service. And, you know, they're trying to put what happened on astute behind them and uh, carry on supporting uh, another boat, Tyler's, which is uh, spending a few days in the port. That was BFBS reporter Jeff Mead there. Now, Christopher, just before we go, let's look ahead to tomorrow. Um, Iranian parliamentary elections. Just tell us what's at stake for the country and for the international community here. Okay, very important. There are 290 seats in the Majlis, which is the Iranian parliament. It is the battle for influence. It's the battle for influence over uh, Mr Ahmadinejad, and the supreme leader, uh, Ali Khamenei, of, of Iran itself. It is a power struggle. It is assumed that the vote will be rigged uh, for Ahmadinejad. And that is the important thing. What do we look for? We look very carefully to see what the consequences of this is, because it could be people out on the streets and saying, just as it was in 2009... We really have to get back and object to this. And there we must leave it. Christopher, thank you very much for your time today. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter. Tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye for now.